Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Policy Pack Software, where you use Group Policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lock down applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And also by Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues, regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And also by Liquidware, the creators of Profile Unity, FlexApp, and Stratosphere UX, the premier UEM app layering and visibility solutions. If you enjoy the show each week, you have them to thank. And now for some news. Last week, there were reports of a temporary outage experienced by Mac OS users. And this was just as Big Sur, the new Mac OS, was being rolled out. The outage was specific to the launching of third-party applications installed on the operating system. Piecing info together from InfoSec community blogs, it appears that Apple verifies developer code signing certs after a certain period for each third-party application launched. So if you haven't launched, say, Chrome for a while, it will verify the cert before launching. If you then launch Chrome again a couple of hours later, it won't re-verify the cert, but it will after a certain interval passes. And the problem users start to experience with not being able to launch applications on macOS was related to that cert checking service. It wasn't able to verify the certs, so it wouldn't allow applications to launch. Some online became concerned when this started to happen, thinking that Apple must have a way of tracking every app launch. Researcher Jacopo Janan stated that while you should be aware that macOS might transmit some opaque information about the developer certificate of apps that you run, it appears this isn't on every single launch like I just said, it just verifies after a certain interval. This information, unfortunately, though, is sent out in clear text on your network, which is certainly not a good thing. But contrary to what some were saying online, it appears that it does not send the hash of applications on every single launch. In further security-related news in the latest macOS, researcher Patrick Wardle tweeted about the fact while third-party apps need to go through a firewall service, Now, many of Apple's own first-party applications do not go through a firewall service, meaning any attacker who wants to skate past the firewall just needs to leverage one of those first-party Apple applications. Patrick states doing this is pretty trivial too and points out the security concerns around this is actually listed in Big Sur's release notes. So it appears Apple is very aware that it's not a great thing to do, but I guess they want the performance benefits over the security benefits. At the time of this recording, there have been several reports of issues from users using macOS 2. It doesn't quite appear to be a huge trend yet, and Apple have not put out a statement about any of the issues that people are reporting. But I assume if it starts to bubble up even more by next week's episode i'll probably be talking about it 
I'm sure the timing of this next announcement is not a coincidence, but Microsoft put out a statement on something they're, they're calling Project Pluton, which is a project based on building a modern processor security feature. They state they are working in collaboration with AMD, Intel, and Qualcomm Technologies. It sounds pretty interesting and they make some pretty big claims about how much of an effect this will have on security, stating that it will eliminate entire vectors of attack. The design, which is a re-architecture of the TPM chip, which TPM is Trusted Platform Module Chip, it should make it more difficult for attackers to hide beneath the operating system and improve the ability to guard against physical attacks, prevent the theft of credentials and encryption keys, and provide the ability to recover from software bugs. Today, the TPM chips are used for products like BitLocker and Windows Hello. If you're not familiar with it, in the BitLocker example, when your drive is encrypted and an encryption key is stored on the chip, meaning if someone tries to steal your encrypted drive, like take the drive out of the machine, try to put it into another machine, there's a word for it that I don't want to use because it is not acceptable. But when you do that, if it was encrypted with BitLocker and TPM chip was being used, they'll not be able to access that drive using another machine because it won't see the TPM chip and it won't be able to see the encryption key that it needs to allow access. The Microsoft statement points out flaws with the current TPM design and the fact that it has been subject of attacks targeting the communication channel between the TPM and CPU. With this redesign, there will be no longer a need for a communication channel as the chip will integrate directly with the CPU, which is why I'm sure these chip designers need to be on board with it for it to work. Not stated in this article, but there was a particularly bad vulnerability in some TPM chips that I covered on the podcast previously. I think it was about two years ago, and it required a firmware upgrade. I'm almost certain most organizations did not do that upgrade because doing so was very difficult. This statement that's been put out suggests they will use the TPM for encryption keys, much like today, but it'll be much more secure thanks to the design and, importantly, They've stated they will ensure firmware upgrades are available through the normal Windows updates. Interestingly, unbeknownst to me at least, this technology has actually already existed for some time and it featured in the Xbox One as far back as 2013 and also in Azure Sphere. There is no mention of when the feature will start to appear more universally in Windows-based PCs by the big vendors. But since it's already existed, I'm assuming it's just a case of these manufacturers getting to grips with it and rolling it into product offerings. I'll be very interested to see if it holds up to the big claims. Google Chrome version 87 has now been released as the new stable release. Bleepingcomputer.com reports a pretty significant change that may lead to greater performance and hopefully save our batteries a little too. It turns out, JavaScript timers have been using over 40% of the resources, and in version 87, Google is increasing performance by only allowing these JavaScript timers to wake up and perform a function once every minute. Google states that this reduces CPU usage by up to five times and extends battery life up to one and a quarter hours. 
according to their internal testing. They stated they've done this without sacrificing the background features the users care about, like playing music and getting notifications. Some of the other updates in this release include improved security through some vulnerability fixes and FTP support getting disabled by default, which is pretty welcome. Threatpost.com have reported on three Citrix SD-WAN remote code execution vulnerabilities. The flaws affect the SD-WAN center versions before 11.22, 11.1.2b, and 10.2.8. They consist of an unauthenticated path traversal and shell injection problem in stop underscore ping, and that's labeled as CVE-2020-8271. There's also a config editor, a config editor authentication bypass, which is CVE-2020-8272, and a create Azure deployment shell injection issue, which is CVE-2020-8273. So that's 8271 through 8273. Severity scores for these vulnerabilities have not yet been issued. Interestingly, security researchers found similar vulnerabilities in two other SD-WAN products from other companies, including Cisco. The article confirms the vulnerabilities across all identified SD-WANs have patches available. A feature that provides a capability that can take into account the type of network you are connecting from for your Windows Virtual Desktop session and decide whether or not to go by TCP or a UDP transport protocol is now available. So before this feature release, the only method was something called Windows Virtual Desktop Gateways, which relied on TCP, which as we all know, doesn't tolerate latency very well. Well, now this new feature is called Short Path. And if it detects that the network is maybe not as robust as ideal, you'll be able to take this short path and use UDP for better performance. Some of the benefits of short path listed by Microsoft include RDP short path transport is based on top of a highly efficient universal rate control protocol. This protocol enhances UDP with active monitoring of network conditions and provides fair and full link utilization. It operates at low delay and loss levels as needed by remote desktop. It achieves best performance by dynamically learning network parameters and providing protocol with a rate control mechanism. So it sounds like this universal rate control protocol is what gives it that intelligence to know whether it should use the UDP protocol or not. RDP short path also establishes the direct connectivity between the remote desktop client and session host. Direct connectivity like this reduces the dependency on the Windows Virtual Desktop gateways, improves the connection's reliability, and increases the bandwidth available for each user session. So major performance benefits there. It's stated that the removal of additional relay reduces the round trip time too, which improves user experience with latency sensitive applications and input methods. This all also brings quality of service support for RDP connections through a differentiated services code point, and it allows limiting outbound network traffic by specifying a throttle rate for each session. 
So certainly if you've tried Windows Virtual Desktop before and maybe you weren't having the best performance or user experience, it sounds like now would be a good time to revisit it and see if it's improved for you. Congratulations go to ControlUp who have raised $27 million in a Series C round of financing led by JVP and K1 Investment Management, bringing total funding to $40 million, which is pretty impressive. They say the Series C financing follows major company milestones, including expanding the company's client roster to, to B2C and B2B brands, more than 50 of the Fortune 100, including T-Mobile, Sprint, plus a host of others. It's stated that the company has also been growing, increasing its employee base by more than 50% in 2020, employing 180 employees globally. The article I was reading was really honing in on the use of artificial intelligence for monitoring and performance improvement. Obviously, this is great for all of us in end-user computing because competition breeds innovation. Innovation helps all of us. So congratulations to ControlUp. The awesome Mary Branscombe at techrepublic.com reported on Microsoft's Project Nucleus, which aims to improve the performance and reliability of internet-focused web apps, starting with something called Lists. Now, I believe I covered this back in September originally, but I really liked the article that Mary put together. I feel like it was a really good illustration or explanation of the potential and kind of what it's similar to that's already there, or what underlying technologies underpin it that's already out there. So per her description, it reads like with Nucleus, web apps of the future could bring down a local cache, meaning no matter what happens with the connection on your device, your web app should remain at least partially functional. And rather than requiring frequent refreshes and loading entire sites or pages again, the web apps can just sync the differential required to load and perform any actions that have an unloaded or not cached feature. As Mary points out, with Electron apps, which have become a little popular with so many building off of Chromium containers, you get a pretty noisy, fat solution as, it's con it, as it uses a containerized browser. It's why Teams and Slack are so resource-hungry, for example. With progressive web apps and solutions like Project Nucleus, hopefully the future will bring lighter web apps that work well regardless of the state of the connection on your device. Some Microsoft apps using these features could be available later this year according to a previous Microsoft statement. I'll share a link to Mary's article with this episode, which is episode 151. You'll find that on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links. FSLogix version 2009 has been released. From the release notes, it looks like there has been a lot of changes around logging with more appearing in Event Viewer, for example, as well as many, many fixes. Like previous releases, you can upgrade to 2009 over any previous version. The release notes continue to feature this note that says there is a current investigation regarding recent rare reports of deadlocks in conjunction with cloud cache. This would result in an OS lock requiring a restart and loss of all sessions. 
It is unclear what the cause of these issues are, including if they are caused by CloudCache or FSLogix. These issues have been reported on versions of FSLogix earlier than 2009, but based on initial investigations, it is also possible that this 2009 release may increase the frequency of these issues, which <laughs> is not a great incentive to upgrade, but still, at least it's, it's there for all to see. Parallels Remote Application Server version 18's preview has been released, which is a first look at their unified Windows Virtual Desktop feature, which includes a single pane of glass for managing deployments and tasks from a centralized Parallels RAS console. You can administer RAS and WVD environments, users, sessions, and processes from the console centrally. You can easily automate and streamline administrative routines with a range of automation tools. You can deploy apps and desktops in hybrid and multi-cloud environments. There's some auto-scaling features for Azure and on-premises infrastructures. There's support and the ability to deliver legacy applications along with newer Windows virtual desktop workloads, as well as some advanced features like ultra-fast logons using session pre-launch, drag and drop functionality, accelerated file retrieval, and universal printing and scanning. They also list native integration with their product and FSLogix profile containers, as well as an automatic image optimization feature plus more. This week, Sophos reported on one of my favorite old video game companies, Capcom. They got hit with a ransomware demanding $11 million in payment. The attacker stated that they will leak and auction off the stolen data if their demands are not met. As of this recording, Capcom have not paid the ransom. They also reported themselves to the British and Japanese bodies for the data breach. They have admitted they aren't sure how much of their data has been compromised and have warned that data might include personal information of shareholders and customers, plus employees and more. Some on Reddit have been reporting that they have seen some source code and information on upcoming game releases from the data that was taken, but that's not verified at this point. Sophos gives kudos to Capcom in their article for how they have handled this so far. The advice, as I've said in other episodes of the podcast, when hit with the ransomware, is to not pay the ransom because if you pay the ransom, they know you're willing to pay a ransom and it just encourages further attacks. So it's a pretty terrible position to be in, but it sounds like they're doing the right thing. An updated version of the Windows Virtual Desktop PowerShell module was released this week, version 2.0.1. I didn't see any list of what's new or fixed, but it's a minor rev, so it might not be much but no harm having it updated. An MSIX packaging extension is now available in Azure. The extension, which is an Azure DevOps extension, helps you build, package, and sign Windows apps using the MSIX package format. The packaging extension contains tasks that you can use to custom build a pipeline within Azure according to your requirements. And that'll include the ability to build and package applications into the MSIX packaging format, sign those packages, create or update .app installer files for MSIX apps, as well as 
create a VHDX package for MSIX app attach. And on the topic of MSIX, a brand new book has just launched called the MSIX Packaging Fundamentals. The book is co-authored by Bogdan Matrish, Tim Mangan, and Kevin Kamansky. If you haven't tried MSIX yet and you're in the app packaging space and want to ramp yourself up, this would be a really excellent starting point for you. Also, if you're like me and you just don't have the time to constantly day in, day out, spend on MSIX because at least from my opinion right now, it's not quite where it needs to be. This is a really great resource too. I know that Tim in particular is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the PSF, which would help to make more of the applications that I struggle to get working with MSIX work with it. So this is going to be a wealth of knowledge for me and it could be for you too. So check out that book. It's called MSIX Packaging Fundamentals. And now a hot job. PwC in the United States are looking for an NIS threat intelligence analyst. The great thing about this role, at least in my opinion, is that they'll allow you to work remotely anywhere in the United States. Some of the skills and responsibilities for this include the ability to develop new skills outside of your comfort zone, act to resolve issues which prevent the team working effectively, coach others, recognize their strengths and encourage them to take ownership of their personal development, and more of that type of management stuff. They say that at minimum, a high school diploma is required, a degree is preferred, but not required. You'll require a minimum of four years progressive professional roles involving information security and or IT management. Some of the preferred knowledge and skills include the ability to write Yara rules, uh, experience with network protocols, OSI, OSI layers three to five, basic programming in Python, incident response processes, high-level analytical and information organizational skills with the ability to creatively resolve issues, security information and event management experience, Splunk preferred, plus more. I won't keep going through this because we've all read job specs before. They are a little bit broad in what they look for. But if you're interested in this position, I'll share a link with this episode, which is episode 151, and you can read more about it and apply if it suits you. And now, the weekly webinar. So if I get the timing right on the release of this week's episode, then the policy pack lockdown event, which I talked about on last week's episode, is either taking place or has finished. So hopefully you enjoyed that one. But this week, I wanted to highlight the MAD event, which is going to feature sessions on ABV and MSIX, for example. And it's taking place this Friday. It's a completely free event, and you can register now. And also, I have to mention that E2EVC's hybrid event is taking place on Friday, too. And registration is still available for that to attend it remotely. Both are on Friday, so you might need to double dip and maybe select which sessions interest interest you the most from each and kind of dive in and out. So enjoy the sessions, everyone. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. 
This week I saw on Twitter that Tommy Harla pointed out that there's an edge-urls feature within the Edge Chromium browser. And this brings up a list of accessible URLs within the browser. So for example, like accessing the settings via a URL or accessing apps to see what apps are installed. It's similar to Chrome's URL. So you know, you go like whack whack settings, I'll bring you into the browser settings, for example. So if you want a full list of that, you can find that via edge-urls and I will share a link with a list of those URLs if you're interested in just seeing a screenshot of it too. If you use Igel OS in Teams, Microsoft Teams, and have been having performance issues, Frederick Bratstick has said that you should consider using Igel OS firmware version 11.04.220 that includes the current Workspace app version 2010. I know where I work currently, we do use a combination of Igel or Eagle and Microsoft Teams, and we have been having performance issues. So we're excited to try this out to see if it improves. Somewhat related to the RDP short path feature in WVD mentioned in the news, but Christian Brinkoff this week shared a link to a document that shows bandwidth estimates for certain types of traffic. It's very, very well done. It's got some really great examples and even includes some GIFs illustrating some of the different traffic types, showing you what the bandwidth estimates are in a separate column. Very, very cool documentation. It's rare that you see this even from like Microsoft's docs, you don't tend to see this level of illustration. So very cool. And finally for this week, Carl Webster or Webster, as he's more commonly known in the community, shared a blog post from qdsecurity.se. The article illustrates some security concerns with certificates and issuing access to allow people to manage their own certificates in an enterprise organization, all whilst using Super Mario Brothers for references. It's pretty interesting to step through what actually does happen in an enterprise where, you know, Maybe you've got someone on the server team or on the security team who's supposed to be managing certificates and they've got that one needy person who's constantly coming to them for certificates and they decide the shortest path is just to empower them to manage their own certificates. Well, that can have disastrous consequences. And this article goes into a few examples of what could happen as well as giving advice on how to handle certificate management. So personally, I hate certificates. I know that they're a necessary evil, but for me, it's interesting to read this to maybe further that thought in my head and reinforce that these are really important and they shouldn't be taken lightly. Well, that's it for another episode of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening.